All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, and as David Platt says, and I hope you do, uh, find Esther chapter 4. We are in the fourth week of our study of the book of Esther. We've done some groundwork, kind of laying the land for the big drama that started last week in Esther chapter 3, and now we have come to a huge pivot point in the story of Esther and the Jews among the Persian Empire. As you're finding Esther 4, just to recap, we learned last week that an edict had been sent out to all the empire to destroy all of the Jews. All of the people of God were to, to be devoted to destruction. They were to be killed at the end of the year. Mordecai, who was a Jew, disrespected Haman the Agagite, who's now second in command to the king. And because of that dishonor, because of that disrespect, uh, it seemed to spell certain destruction for Israel. The city of Susa, where the palace, the citadel was, was thrown into confusion, all while Ahasuerus the king and Haman, the second in command, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, they feasted and drank together, sequestered from the chaos of the city. It shows the picture that while the world empire kind of moves on and Everything's hunky-dory, everything's fun, everything's fine, we can celebrate. It is detached from the reality that we live in a world that is confused and broken. Today, we're going to see how our main characters, Esther and Mordecai, respond to the threat against God's people. One of the beautiful things we'll see as we walk through this story is that God is able to use anything and anyone for His glory. It doesn't matter who they are, what they've done. Uh, God is able to use them to bring about his providential purposes. We'll also see that Esther and Mordecai are a great encouragement to us because they point us in distinct ways to Jesus. They point us to the Christ. We remember as we read through the story of Esther, just like we read through any book of the Bible, uh, that Esther is not the main character of the story. Mordecai is not the main character of the story. You and I are not the main characters of the story God is the main character of the story. Even though he isn't explicitly mentioned in the book of Esther, he is always there, always working. We're going to see this morning in Esther chapter 4 just one scene, one scene in the story with tension that's ratcheting up throughout the chapter. And within this scene, there are three parts that all make up their own story within a story. So let's pick up where we left off last week in Esther chapter 4. Let's start in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why this was. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh Lord God, you are great and worthy to be praised. 
You are Father, Son, Spirit. You are holy, holy, holy. You are the Creator, the King of all kings, sovereign over all, and you are working your decree, your providential hand, orchestrating all the events of history to bring about the glory that is due your name and the good of the creation that you have made. And so, Lord, we get a a glimpse of that truth and more in this story of Esther. And Lord, I pray that as we kind of peek in and see what is going on in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and the people of God, that we would be transformed by the power of your Spirit. God, help us to rightly understand your Word so that we might rightly see you, rightly see ourselves, and live in your world as faithful followers of our King. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, the title of the message is For Such a Time as This, because you don't want to mess up with a classic. This is a uh, well-known phrase that comes to us from Esther chapter 4, that Mordecai is going to tell Esther, who knows, maybe you were put in your place as queen of all the Persian Empire for such a time as this. And what we know about providence, that 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 doctrine, that idea that God is in control of all things, that he's orchestrating all things for his purposes, that he's preserving and sustaining all things, right? You don't make your heart beat, do you? Like you don't make that decision to make your heart beat anymore. God is sustaining you. And he's energizing us through his actions and his ordination that all the things that take place in his world take place because of his decree. We we believe the doctrine of providence, but providence is seen most clearly looking back. In the present, it's really difficult for us to see God's providence at work because it's like we're looking with the camera zoomed in way too close, right? When you zoom your camera in too close, things get blurry, they get fuzzy, you're not seeing the whole picture, and you may be looking at something beautiful, but you don't know. (laughs) But when you look back and you're able to widen out that lens a little bit more, you can see with greater clarity the beauty of what God is doing. It's the same with the story of Esther. Esther begins, Esther chapter 4 begins with Mordecai learning what's going on. He has realized what's happening to the people of God in this empire is my fault. I disrespected Haman. I I dishonored the second in command person to the king. Haman has offered vast riches to the king Ahasuerus, and now the decree has been sent. So we're thinking about those stories within a story this morning. If you're taking notes, the first movement, the first part of our story this morning is this. We want to set the stage and see the mourning of the people of God. So we're setting the stage and we see the mourning of the people of God, the the weeping, the lamenting, the sackcloth, the ashes, the fasting. Mordecai leaves the palace for the city square. He, He leaves the presence of the king, puts on sackcloth and ashes, which is a clear symbol in uh, Jewish culture of lament and sorrow. And instead of being uh, considered to be a part of the kingdom, a part of the palace, he goes to identify with the people in their brokenness. He mourns with them. He laments. He begins to cry out. All the people of God throughout the Persian empire start to do the same thing. It seems to be a recognition like Nineveh in the book of Jonah that the people of God here are coming under judgment. They're coming under judgment. And the response to the recognition that they're coming under judgment is lamenting. It's weeping. It's not mentioned, 
but it's repenting. While not explicitly mentioned here, sackcloth, ashes, weeping, lamenting, and fasting usually also include repentance and prayer. Repentance and prayer. This this deep grief in response to certain destruction would lead the people of God to petition the Lord, to, to cry out to Him in prayer, to confess their sins and repent toward Him, but we don't read about it. The text doesn't tell us that they pray. The text doesn't tell us that they repent. The text only tells us that they lament, that they weep, that they fast, and that they put on sackcloth and ashes. Why? Why are prayer and repentance something that's most assuredly a part of their response? Why is it not mentioned explicitly? I think it's because God is behind the scenes in the story of Esther by design. He is behind the scenes. The narrator, the one who is writing the story for us to read, keeps us looking at those who follow God and those who don't follow God. So we notice, for example, the contrast between the people of the empire, the king and the followers of the king. What are they doing more times than not throughout the story? They're feasting. They're celebrating. And what are the people of God doing? They're fasting. They're lamenting. Or the the jubilation of the palace, right? Mourning and sackcloth, we learn, were not allowed in the palace. You weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. You weren't allowed to have a bad day in the presence of the king. So all of this false joy, this false happiness in contrast to the lamenting of the people of Israel. There is a distinction that the narrator of Esther wants us to see. But when Esther hears of her cousin-slash-stepfather's mourning, when she hears that Mordecai is weeping and lamenting out in the city square, it says that she's greatly distressed, but her distress was pointed at him, not the problem. As we'll learn in just a bit, Esther seems to be totally unaware of the decree that Haman has just sent out to destroy the Jews. She's up in her harem as the queen of the Persian Empire. Remember, she's the the chief object of the king's pleasure and affection and entertainment. She is, in many ways, a prisoner. and She's not able to understand what's going on in the outside world. She's cloistered up in this palace, this, this false reality of happiness and joy, totally unaware that her people, the people of God, are doomed to destruction. So she sends clothes to Mordecai. Mordecai, don't be sad. Take away your sackcloth and ashes. Put on some clothes. Here's some clothes. Whatever's going on, it'll be fine. She merely wants to fix the sadness that she sees in Mordecai. As Christopher Ashe, a writer, put it, he says, Mordecai grieves because the people of God are under judgment. Esther's sad because Mordecai's upset. There's just this huge distinction between what's going on with the distress and the grief so here's some new clothes, Mordecai, feel better. And so when he reached, when he refused the clothing, the text tells us, Esther reached out again, but this time through more secure means. She sends Hathak, a servant with apparently total trust, to go to Mordecai and find out what is going on. Why are you distressed? Why are you lamenting? What is the big deal? What's the problem? And it's here we get to the conflict of the chapter and to Mordecai's final request of Esther. So the stage has been set. We've seen the mourning of the people of God. Number two, if you're taking notes, is we see the conflict 
This is a difficult request that's about to be given. Let's look at verse 6. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants, the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So in the second story within this scene that we are reading about in Esther chapter 4, Mordecai tells Hathak, the eunuch, the servant that comes from the queen, okay, what's going on? Help me understand. Why are you in such turmoil? Why are you grieving so deeply? Why are you lamenting? Mordecai tells Hathak the whole story. Tells him the story about how he disrespected Haman, about how Haman's fury didn't just end terminate on Mordecai, but it was flashing out to all the people of God in the Persian empire. That he bribed basically uh, the king with money over half of the tax revenue that would come in for the year. Hathak was promising to pay to the king if he would just allow him to take care of this little problem. Because Hathak, or because Haman rather told the king, there's a certain people in your kingdom and they do not follow your laws. It's not profitable that they exist. So let me take them out. Let me destroy them, and I'll give you money. So Mordecai tells Hathak all of this story. He even gives them a copy of the decree, a written copy that's been probably posted in the town square so that Esther can see with her own eyes what her husband, the king, has sealed with the signet ring he gave to Haman. This is the decree. This is a promise that we will be destroyed. Then he asks, Mordecai asks through Hathak to the queen, you need to go to the king. You need to go before him and you need to beg for our salvation. You need to beg, speak on behalf of God's people, be a mediator. Stand between those who are doomed to be destroyed and the only one who can save them and beg for mercy the only power in the empire that could overthrow Haman was the king himself. Now we gave a pretty quick synopsis and we read through stories like Esther chapter 4 relatively quickly, but don't miss the tension that the narrator has built into the plot line of what's going on. Mordecai leaves the palace to lament in the city square. He is geographically in a different spot than the queen. Esther hears of his lamenting and tries to help him with clothes. So Kind of step one, goes and sends clothes to Haman. Haman refuses. The person comes back with the clothes and says, he didn't want them. So then Esther sends Hathak to Mordecai. Mordecai sends uh, Hathak back to Esther with details of the decree and a plea for Esther to act. But between all of these steps, we read them, bam, bam, bam. Between all of these steps is time. 
So just imagine, for example, where we just ended, Mordecai sends off Hathak and says, go tell Esther, go tell the queen what's going on. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And then he sees Hathak again. You can imagine if you were trying to find a way to save your people, if you were trying to find a way to preserve the people of God from certain destruction, it would be really hard not to either fill yourself up with false hope or find yourself falling off into despair, right? And when you see Hathak coming, when you see the messenger of the queen coming back from the palace to you, you're wondering, what's he going to say? What message does the queen have? What is she going to decide to do? Esther and Mordecai are not face-to-face. This word, this message is quietly traveling between the city and the palace, back and forth, back and forth. And it's supposed to draw you and me in to the tension that these characters are feeling. The weight of the world is on their shoulders. The weight of the lives of God's people is on their shoulders. Don't miss what Mordecai requested for Esther to do. Don't miss exactly what he said. Go to the king, Mordecai says. Beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. He says, Esther, you need to go and plead with the king on behalf of your people. Precisely at the time that Israel was most in danger, And it's the the exact time that Israel was the most vulnerable to the king in Persia. Esther is supposed to finally reveal her identity as one of the ones that the king has signed off on to be destroyed. Remember, Esther has up to this point hidden her heritage, hidden her identity as a follower of Yahweh, hidden her identity as a Jew. So Hathak goes to tell Esther the message, and then she sends him back to Mordecai with a response. In other words, let's paraphrase, she basically tells Mordecai, do you realize what you're asking me to do? Do you realize what you're asking me to do? Don't you know that you can't just waltz up to the throne? And, and we would, Mordecai would know. Mordecai is a, a civil servant. He's an official in the kingdom, he knows how this works. He knows that what he is asking Esther to do is to put her life on the line. No one can go to the throne without the threat of death. Lawbreakers, there is only one law for those who approach the throne illegally, and that is to be killed. Unless, unless this king, this king that we have learned for the last four chapters is capricious, random, arbitrary, not consistent, he's going to extend mercy to you? I mean, his wife disobeyed him one time and all of the women of the empire were rebuked. So you're going to break the law to his face and hope that he extends grace to you. You may think he'll show mercy, Esther says. You think, I'm the queen. I'm his wife. I'm the one that he loved more than any of the other young women in Esther chapter 2. But he hasn't called for me in a month. 
He hasn't asked to see me in 30 days. I haven't seen him. I don't know what he's been up to. He hasn't been alone. He's the king of Persia. I know that. So I've been stuck here for 30 days, wondering if he even remembers who I am, wondering if I'll ever be called again. Esther's not refused Mordecai's request, but she hasn't accepted it either. Now that we know, Esther may lose her life. And and Esther's thinking, if I lose my life, then what? I go to the king, he kills me, and, and then what? When will salvation come to the Jews? Esther is a woman caught between two worlds. Remember, she's the only person in the story that's given two names. Esther, her Persian name, and Hadassah, Myrtle, her Hebrew name. She is a woman caught between life as a follower of the king of kings or life as assimilated into the world empire. Will she idly sit by and watch her people be handed over to destruction Or will she rise up as a mediator between the king and her people? And that leads us to the final exchange, the resolution to Esther's hesitation. So the third story within a story this morning is the resolution. An ultimatum is given. Look at verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Here we witness the final back and forth of this conversation between Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai responds to Esther's hesitation with what can only be described if we're looking clearly and if we're looking with the eyes of a Christian back into the book of Esther, what can only be described as a confession of the gospel. Look again at verse 13. He says, you will not escape judgment. Don't think that because you're in the palace, you're safe. Judgment is coming for all of us. But I am confident, I am assured that relief and deliverance, salvation will come for God's people, either from you or from something else or someone else. Regardless, my faith, Mordecai says, is in God's promise to secure and redeem his people. Now, why can Mordecai say this with such confidence? Why can Mordecai tell her that deliverance will come one way or another? Because Mordecai knows that a promise has been made. If you were in equipping groups two weeks ago, you read Genesis chapter 15. You studied that text and you saw that God made a promise to Abraham that through him an offspring would come who would bless 
the nations, that God's people would be preserved until the nations were blessed by an offspring of Abraham. God's promises were trustworthy, even when everything seemed hopeless. It was trustworthy in Genesis 15, when Abraham believed God as a hundred-year-old man with no son, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we can trust God's word. We can trust His promise. We can trust His revelation. And like Abraham, when we put our faith in God, when we put our trust in His faithfulness, it will be credited to us as righteousness. Mordecai's hope in God has convinced him a deliverer will come. But then he poses a thought for Esther. Esther, what if you are exactly where you are for this purpose? What if you won the contest to be the king's new queen? What if you, this orphan exile in the middle of Susa, what if you were brought to one of the top positions of influence in the world for this moment? What if all the coincidences of your life, the death of your parents, being raised by me, being interacting with and introduced to the, the ways of the kingdom, up until this very moment, what if all of these coincidences of your life were not coincidences at all? Sometimes God's providence is really hard to see in the moment. When everything's crashing down around us, when everything seems bleak and terrible, or, when, or even when everything seems normal, God's providence is hard to notice. We often fail to see His invisible presence. Sometimes we need people in our life to remind us of that presence and remind us of God's providence. And that's exactly what Mordecai is doing for Esther here. Everything that happens in the lives of God's people really is for God's glory and their good. And Esther is reminded once again, and we are reminded as well as part of the people of God. This is something we can trust. This is something we can put our faith in. So Esther responds to Mordecai and a few reversals take place. You see in the book of Esther, there's all kinds of reversals. Up is down, down is up. First, we see that she now identifies with the Jews over the Persians. Esther, the queen of the Persian empire, is now going to say, go find the Jews, hold a fast for me. I'll get some Persian attendants to join me. We're going to fast as well. Second, she now gives Mordecai instructions. All throughout the, her life and all throughout the story up to this point, Mordecai has been the one running the show in Esther's life. She looks at him as a, a father figure. And, and she obeys his commands. But now here in verse 15 and 16, she tells him what to do. There's a shift that takes place. The girl who once looked to Mordecai as a father is now moving into partnership with him and will soon in the story take the lead. Third, Esther decides to think of others over herself. And she's willing to perish for her people. Before, she was looking after her own interests. She was trying to stay alive, make people happy, find favor among those who could keep her safe. And now she is willing to lay her life on the line for the sake of the people of God. 
This is a response to gospel proclamation. Esther is saying, I will stake my life on God's promise. And even if I perish, I believe like Mordecai, deliverance for God's people will come. She tells Mordecai to get all of the Jews to fast for three days. As I mentioned earlier, we can expect that prayers were also included here. Esther and her young attendants would also fast before she went to see the king. Now, three days of no food and no drink would have an effect on someone's appearance. Right? If you haven't eaten or drinking anything in three days, you probably would know. Somebody probably could look at you and say, you look a little different. Now, remember... We've seen all throughout this story, what does the empire look like? What does the the world empire look for? It looks beautiful. And it looks for external beauty, not internal character. So it seems counterintuitive for Esther to prepare to find favor from the king who is led almost entirely by his eyes by fasting for three days. It's just another example of Esther's commitment to the people of God over the ways of the empire. That sets us up for the rest of the drama of the story of Esther. She's made her decision. She's going to be faithful to the God of Israel. She's going to be faithful to the people of God. She'll be willing to lay her life down on the line as a mediator. And as we conclude, I want us to just avoid a couple of pitfalls by way of application, not just for the book of Esther, but for all of our studies when we interpret the Bible. We may feel tempted when we hear this story to immediately see a direct line between us and Esther or us and Mordecai. And we we want rightly to, to make application from their faithful courage or their response to the problems of their day and apply it to our own lives and then move on. We read the the text of Scripture and we say, okay, where am I in the story as a follower of Christ? And what what things do I need to apply to my life? And and there are applications to make. There are things for us to to glean from this, that, that Scripture does have something to demand of us. But remember, we are not the main character of this story. God is. So the first connection we want to make when we interpret Scripture, when we read the Bible for ourselves, is to make a connection from the characters in this story like Esther, the mediator, the one who stands between the king and a doomed people. We want to make the connection not from her to us, but from her to a greater mediator who really did lay down his life on behalf of a chosen and yet doomed people. Our response to seeing Esther's courage is to praise the Lord for His courage. Jesus is the one that we ought to have in view when we read this story because His death wasn't just an option. His death wasn't just a possibility. It was a certainty. And yet, He still went to bear the wrath of our sin. He took our place. He stood for us before God. Once we see that connection, then we can say, like Esther, I want to be like Christ. And Christ-likeness in my life will include standing up for the Lord and His people instead of hiding my true identity, even when it may lead to persecution. Am I willing to stand up for my faith, not so that I can be like Esther, but so that I can be like Jesus? Or we may be convicted that like Esther, 
we are sometimes totally oblivious to the real danger and hardship that the people of God are enduring. She had no idea. She had no idea that the people of God around her were suffering. She had no idea because of her place of prominence, because of her relative luxury in life, because of all of the privileges that she got to experience as queen of the empire. She had no idea that all of the people of God were lamenting, that they were weeping. She wasn't able to join alongside them because she just didn't know. She was oblivious. And students, my fear is that we are oblivious as well. We are a part of a church called Lakeview that regularly puts in front of us the realities of the persecuted church around the world. And yet we have to remember that we live in a culture with a lot of luxury, relative ease. Standing up for Jesus in our day may lead to ridicule, may lead to a loss of a promotion, it may lead to a loss of friendship, but around the world, standing up for Jesus may cause you to lose your life, your freedom, your family. So I I was convicted in studying this text that even in a place like Lakeview where we're constantly reminded of the reality of the persecuted church around the world, we can become oblivious. It can be so just easy to tune it out. So I want us to watch a video. It's just a couple minutes long before we pray and move into our groups. It's from an organization called Open Doors. We've met the president. You'll see his face on the screen and you probably remember him from missions festivals in previous years. It's an organization that we partner with as a church that provides help to our persecuted brothers and sisters and resources for us in the States to stay informed and connected. And one of those resources is called the World Watch List. Every year they put out a list of the top 50 countries where it is the most difficult to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And it's just encouragement to you. It was an encouragement, a challenge to me that when I spend time petitioning the Lord in prayer, it would not be difficult for me to grab that watch list. You can find it online, you can find it, you can print it out, you can find a lot of ways to get it and think, and I just want to take a couple of seconds and pray for my brothers and sisters in North Korea. Spend a couple of minutes and pray for my brothers and sisters in India. Spend a couple of minutes and pray for my brothers and sisters in China. They need our prayers. Like the people of God and Esther, they need someone petitioning on their behalf. So let's, let's watch this video and then I'll end us with some prayer. The desert. A never-ending wilderness. Barren and desolate. But even here, if you look closely, there's life to be found. These are yucca brevifolia, better known as a Joshua tree. This single tree could be hundreds, even thousands of years old. And that's because what you see is only part of the story. Underground, there's a massive network of roots going down to water, pulling that water out of the ground and storing it in the tree, keeping the tree alive, resilient to the desert wasteland. In the world today, one in eight Christians are discriminated against oppressed, even attacked. 
just because they follow Jesus. They are desperate voices crying out in a dry land. When I became a Christian, my beliefs turned against me. I no longer belong. In China, the government installed facial recognition cameras in our sanctuary. That camera can gather the private data of our church members. They will intimidate them, they will prevent them from going to church. Suna kone churches, suna ibe kaya mutane, suna kashi mutane, that means ana kashi krista wana So ina gani domin kristanchi ina kiri. We know from this year's World Watch List that 340 million Christians live in places around the world where they are discriminated against or persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. That number is hard to imagine, hard to get your mind around, but we know that God is faithful. In the book of Isaiah, God tells his people, I will make new ways in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In midst of persecution, churches are growing more. Through the persecution, God is making the church grow. We are so united together like never before. We have a revival in our church, even in the severe persecution. God has sent a river into the wilderness, and His people are resilient. Like the Joshua tree, they're living boldly in the desert and they depend upon the church, the roots of his family, for water and support. They are so encouraged by Christians from America, pray for them, really care for them. It's like a body of Christ. When you read the 2021 World Watch List and let it touch your heart, when you commit to pray for your brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world for their faith, you're helping God make rivers in the desert and helping His children to stand strong for Him. The prayer is the core. When you don't know anything, just pray. When you don't understand anything, pray. You will understand. Open Doors has been called into this work to strengthen God's people in the desert and to help them overcome the odds. Will you join us? We do not pray that God would remove the persecution. We pray that God would give us the grace to stand. That is so foreign to us. <laughs> and the story of Esther reminds us of our own story and our brothers and sisters around the world. So I want to pray. And maybe you're like me, and part of the application of this sermon is to repent and say, God, I often don't have eyes to see. Will you, will you help me to see the needs of my brothers and sisters? If, I, if, they, if they were here, if I could see them in front of me, I know that I would respond. But because they're so distant, because it's easy for me to not look in their direction, it's easy to become oblivious to their great need. So Father, we ask that you might Give us eyes that see the great needs of your people and yet not despair, but like Mordecai, become all the more confident that God, you are 
orchestrating the events of history for the glory of your name and the good of your church. You have allowed great persecution to come, just like you've allowed this decree to go out in the Persian Empire. But death does not have the last word. Death does not win in this story, and neither does it win in the story of history, because God, you, through your Son, conquered death. And now the the good news of the gospel offers us life. And so Lord, I pray that you might help us to be responding to the gospel every day, taking up our cross to follow after you with eyes that can see past our own neighborhoods and past our own lives into the great needs of our brothers and sisters around the world. Would you help us to be reminded of their need to to ask for your strength, your power, your wisdom, your goodness, your blessings to fall on them. Help us to support them. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.